But if you would, open your Bibles to Matthew, the sixth chapter, Matthew chapter six. We are in a, uh, a short series, uh, as it were, called Your Kingdom Come. Your Kingdom Come. And uh, we're, gonna, we're looking at the Lord's Prayer. We've, we began by looking at what is the kingdom of God. Why, why are we crying out for the kingdom of God to come? And what does that even mean? And so we looked at that, and then we looked at the formation. And the first three requests in this prayer are really uh, about the formation of our desires. And these last three requests are about the formation of our needs. Or you might say the formation of how we understand our needs, what they really are. And uh, so we will be looking at that. But if you would join me in Matthew chapter 6, and uh, beginning in verse 9. And, and actually, as we... As we do that, when we get to the prayer, if you would read it aloud with me. Uh, this, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. For you, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will for, also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Amen. It's a good thing I don't talk for a living. <laughs> uh, let's pray. Father, as so we come to your word, open our hearts that we might understand it and put it into practice. Transform us by the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As a child, even a teenager, I never would have guessed that I needed children in order to mature into the person that God wanted me to be. Before having children, uh, I had never changed a diaper. My, my whole life. Prior to having, at age 25, a child, Stephanie, I, I had never changed a diaper. In fact, I used to joke that I would just get a harness, create a harness for this baby, and hang it on, on a hook, and, and get a hose, and, and spray until the diaper came off, and clean, and then let the child dry, and then re, re-diaper the child. I mean, that was the only thing that made sense to my mind, Okay. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I did. I, I did say that. I never did it. But then, but then my first daughter was born. My, my first daughter was born. And that changed everything instantly. Helpless. Dependent. And, and I immediately discovered that I was now dependent on her, too. For a love that I had never known. At the time, it it was a time when we would frequently talk about, you know, the need to have our priorities right. You got to get your priorities in order. You got to love God first, love your wife, love your child. And and at that point, all that went out the window. Like, you suddenly realize you can't categorize that kind of love. My love for my wife and my love for my children, they're different things. They're altogether different things. And I never had that other thing until I had a child. And then I actually was concerned that if we were to have a second child, 
that I wouldn't be able to love it the same because where am I going to get more of that love? It's already so big, I don't even know what to do with it. How do I get more? I can't divide it in half. Then the second one's born, you get just a whole nother love. That just, there's a capacity change that you didn't even know would be possible. You see, I, I needed something that I had no idea that I needed until I had it. I needed something that I had no idea that I needed until I had it. In the novel, Hannah Coulter by Wendell Berry, Hannah gets married to Virgil, who shortly heads off to fight in World War II. Hannah had just gotten pregnant, and Virgil dies in the war. The war wreaked havoc on the community of Port William, as it did in many communities. And when the baby was born, Hannah notes this. She says, we all needed her. Little Margaret, that is, the baby. Even Ernst Finley, an unhappy man, would lean on his crutches and look at her and smile. We didn't know how much we needed her until she came among us. And then we knew. She came to us like love between lovers. The answer to a need we would not have had if she hadn't come. Anyone who has experienced the loss or even the threat of the loss of a child in infancy has experienced grief upon grief. And that over a being that maybe one year prior or so, they did not know. We don't always know what we need. And our needs are shaped or formed by many different things. Our needs are learned over time and experience. And as believers, the Lord's Prayer teaches us what we need. The Lord's Prayer teaches us to pray for what we need even before we realize that we need it. We likely think we need something else, but we train ourselves to pray for what we need, and the Lord slowly begins to answer that prayer. Like a a baby growing in a womb for over nine months, until one day we are experiencing it in part. And realize how much we need the very thing we've been asking for. The first half of this prayer, as we saw, is for the formation of our desires. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if you weren't here for that, you can go back and and, and listen to that one. But this one is about the formation of our needs. Teaching us what we need. We're going to explore it under three headings. We need daily bread. We need to be forgiven and forgiving, and we need deliverance from evil. We need daily bread. Verse 11 says it succinctly, give us today our daily bread. Bread, in this request, is not a dietary recommendation or the only item on the menu. Hey, waiter, I'd I'd like bread. Like, I had other choices. You know, no, that's not what bread represents here. Bread stood for, in their world, all that is needed to sustain life. All that is needed to sustain life. We use the term similarly today when we say that so-and-so is the breadwinner in the family. We don't mean that they literally just go get bread and bring it home. We mean that they provide housing and, and clothing and food and the necessary items to sustain existence in that family. And that's what the word is used to mean here as well. 
Give us today our daily bread. Maybe you've noticed the redundancy in that. Today and daily, kind of a little bit redundant. But not exactly so. The word translated daily is an unusual Greek word found only in the Lord's Prayer here in, in Luke and, and not found often in outside works, at least of what's surviving. The best Greek lexicon, the BDAG, has its first definition as uh, necessary for existence and its second as for the current day. So we might read it, give us today what is necessary for existence today. Give us today what is necessary for existence today. Now, what we think is necessary is not always necessary. Have you ever entered a a contest or a drawing to win a a year's supply of fill-in-the-blank, anything? You know, chicken sandwiches, pizza, whatever it might be. Get a year's supply of whatever that is. I mean, like, where am I going to store it all, right? I mean, that's the first question. I mean, it's, it's like a truck going to back up to my house, get one of those tubes like you see coming out the back of a cement truck and bring it into my living room and just start dumping it, you know? I mean, how am I going to have a year's supply? Do I need to line my garage with freezers? How is that going to work? Well, okay, turns out if you win that, that you either get 12 or 52 coupons, which are valid for either each month or each week of the year. I mean, it's such a letdown. I mean, really, I mean, like, and I thought I was getting a year's supply of pizza. We we tend to think that way when it comes to our needs. We think what we need is a truck full of supply, usually in the form of money, of course, because that is easier to store. But God gives us for today what is necessary for our existence today. But what about tomorrow? What about tomorrow? We prefer winning the lottery or inheriting a lot of money. Of course, you kind of have to have rich relatives for that. Something we've realized is not going to happen to us because we don't. (laughs) That's the way that works. Um, Or maybe marrying well. Or a secure retirement. I mean, that's what I need. Justo Gonzalez points out that we need to learn, quote, the difference between what is necessary and what is superfluous, as the early church did. The difference between what is necessary and what is superfluous. I remember the first time my dad used the word superfluous on me. He was editing some writing I had done, and and I asked if he would read through it. And he said, that's superfluous. I said, great, what's that mean? You know? It's, it's excessive. It's unnecessary. You don't need that there in terms of writing. It's like, just strike that. It, it doesn't matter. I said, great, I learned a word, and you fixed my, helped my, my, my writing become better. <laughs> um, necessary, and, and he, he goes on to describe what this, this whole thing. Necessary is that without, that without which life cannot be healthy and normal. So what are our needs? They are those things without which our life cannot be healthy and normal. When we pray, give us today our daily bread, we are asking God to give us today what we need for a healthy and normal life. We're not asking to exist on bread and water. Okay, that's not the request. Lord, help us live on bread and water and then give the rest away. That's not the request on the one hand. And so we need to be clear about that. 
it's not mere survival, but healthy survival. A place to sleep, clean clothing, healthy food. Okay. Then he goes on to describe, Gonzalez, he says, uh, what, what is superfluous. He says, necessary is that without which life cannot be healthy and normal. Everything else is superfluous. Everything else is superfluous. Now, if you want to know what we're really praying for when we pray, give us today our daily bread, or when we pray, give us today what is necessary for our existence today, listen to what Gonzalez says next, for I think this gets to the heart of the prayer. Quote, Owning anything that is superfluous for us, but necessary for others, is practically the same as stealing. And therefore, believers who already have the equivalent of their daily bread are expected to share the rest with those who are in greater need. Amen. Or oh me. A little bit of both. I'm going to read that again. Owning anything that is superfluous for us but necessary for others is practically the same as stealing. And therefore, believers who already have the equivalent of their daily bread are expected to share the rest with those who are in greater need. Now, this isn't just Gonzalez's opinion. This is his uh, summary of what you can read in all the church fathers, how they treated this expression in this prayer and how we were supposed to live. Living in this way, in, in, in a manna economy, it's, it's all, that prayer request is really rooted in what happened in the wilderness. They had Every day, manna came down, and they were to collect what they needed for the day. And if they had anything extra, they were to make sure others had it, because it would all rot if they didn't get rid of it by the end of the day. But on the sixth day, they could collect for the seventh day as well, and it would be enough for two days. And anything beyond that would rot. So this manna economy is living with what we're supplied with today, and anything over that, we make sure others have their needs met. A manna economy. And that's what Jesus is telling us that we need. This is how we should pray. The earliest document that we have outside of Scripture itself, from about 70 A.D., the Didache, Christian document, I mean, says this, Be not one who stretches out his hands to receive, but shuts them when it comes to giving. Thou shalt not hesitate to give, nor shalt thou grumble when thou givest. I don't know why we translate these things into Old English, but, it, we, you know, they do. Thou shalt not turn away the needy, but shalt share everything with thy brother, and shalt not say that it is thine own. For if you are sharers in the imperishable, how much more in the things which perish? Now note the logic there. God bless you, yes. If you share in the greater, if you share in the imperishable things, meaning the gospel, with others, how much more should you share the lesser perishable things with them? Now, we tend to think, I mean, maybe not you, I can just speak for myself, as an American, as being raised in the era that I was raised in, I tend to think, how about that, that Oh, I will share what is most important, since that's what really matters. Well, what we're really doing when we do that 
because we're, we're, we're saying, but I'm not going to share these unimportant things. They don't really matter. The eternal stuff matters. It's not so much. What we're really saying is what really matters to me is the stuff I'm going to keep. That's, that, I'm going to keep this because that's what really matters to me. But the reality is, if I can share the most important thing, I certainly ought to be able to share the lesser important things. In, in the 4th century, Basil of Caesarea, after declaring that, quote, whatever is superfluous is to be distributed among the needy, he adds this, Who is a miser? Anyone who is not content with having the necessary. Who is a thief? Anyone taking what belongs to others. And then notice how he defines that. Why then do you not consider yourself a miser and a thief when you claim for yourself what was only, what, what only was given to you so that you may manage it? You ever think that what you've been given is not actually yours? It was given to you that you might manage it. If one takes another's clothing, he is a thief. Why should we give any other name to the one who is able to clothe the naked and refuses to do so? The bread that you hoard belongs to the poor. The cape that you hide in your trunk belongs to the naked. The shoes that rot in your home belong to those who have no shoes. And if, if, lest we blame this on some sort of pre-Reformation kind of legalism, listen to what Calvin says. Quote, Those who, not contented with daily bread, indulge in unrestrained, insatiable cupidity, which means desire or greed, or those who are full of their own abundance and trust in their own riches, only mock God by offering this prayer, referring to give us this day our daily bread. For they ask for what they would be unwilling to obtain, nay, what they most of all abominate or abhor, namely, daily bread alone. Daily bread only. In other words, how many of us say, give us today our daily bread, when we, in fact, want nothing to do with that? We, we want to have much more than our daily bread. And frankly, we are happy to provide for ourselves much more than our daily bread. And yet we're taught to pray this. Why? Well, I think partly because we don't know that we need it, so we need to be taught to pray it. And as we pray it, it teaches us that that is, in fact, what we need. I mean, I generally pray, give us this day our daily bread, kind of assuming that I'm already going to eat tonight. I don't, I don't pray it, kind of wondering if I'm going to eat tonight. And I'm glad that I don't have to wonder for that. But what if I were living and, and saying, Lord, give me today what I need for today, and I really wasn't certain that it was coming, but I had, was utterly dependent upon God. Well, we are utterly dependent upon God. We just don't realize it. That we pray, give us today what is necessary for existence, means that the supply of our need is a gift from God, not merely the result of our ingenuity and hard work. That gift comes with a responsibility toward others. And when we pray this, give us today our daily bread, what we need for today, we declare that what we need is a community in which there are no true needs that go unmet while others have abundance. That's what we're declaring. 
that what we truly need is a community in which there are no, that no true needs that go unmet while others have abundance. To borrow from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., we might say it's the beloved community. This is not an earthly utopia brought about by governance of man, the governance of man, but it can only occur in the kingdom of heaven, which we pray is manifest on earth as it is in heaven, not just one day in the future. But because this is foreign to our thinking, the truth is, I, I've described this, and I'm guessing, and I'm only guessing because, again, if you're anything like me, I, I, I suspect. How's that? that it feels like changing diapers did to me before I had a baby. It's like, yeah, we need that? Really? I don't know if that's what I really need. I much prefer this sort of overabundance and the way we're, we're living. But if we could only get a glimpse of what it really is, it would reveal to us that we have a need for something we didn't know we needed. We need that community in which... There are no true needs that go unmet while others have abundance. Give us today, Lord, what is necessary for existence today. All of us. Amen. Secondly, and you're wondering, wow, you only do second point. Don't worry, that was my longest one. (laughs) We need to be forgiven and forgiving. Verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Verse 14, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Give us today what is necessary for existence today acknowledges our physical dependence on God, while this request acknowledges our spiritual dependence. In the fall... Humanity's relationship with God and one another was broken, and we were completely unable to fix it. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, their relationship with God was shattered, and their relationship with each other was shattered. We must be forgiven, and we must forgive one another. Otherwise, the cycle of broken relationships continues to spiral out of control. Given the previous request... I wonder, what what is one of the first debts for which we need forgiveness? Forgive us our debts. Well, maybe it's the debt of not having shared our daily bread with one who had greater need of it, our superfluous supply with one who had a legitimate need for it. Maybe, Maybe that's the first debt we need to be forgiven of. I put this prayer at the top of the list of dangerous prayers. Forgive us as we also have forgiven. You see, we need to forgive every bit as much as we need to be forgiven. Unless we miss the point, verse 14 and 15 make it explicit. If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. I mean, that's unequivocal. Explain it as you will, it remains quite explicit and quite uncomfortable, or as I say, dangerous. I can't pray it and be comfortable with the unforgiveness I harbor in my heart. 
We are much more inclined to think that we should be forgiven than we are to think that those who sinned against us should be. Just ask me. I, I mean, I, I'm easy to think that God would forgive my sins. It doesn't take me a lot to think, knowing God's mercy and thinking about myself the way I do. I mean, God will forgive my sins. But now the person who sins against me, ah, that's so much harder. They've actually harmed me willfully. What were they thinking as if I hadn't done that to God? Praying as Jesus taught won't let us get away with that. We are brought face to face in this prayer with the fact that the ability to receive our own forgiveness is no easier than our ability to forgive our brother or sister's offense against us. The two are connected. We need to forgive because we cannot experience God's forgiving grace in our own lives while holding on to offense. Now, forgiving others is costly and it's hard it's costly and it's hard just as god suffered in order to forgive us we too must be willing to suffer in order to forgive others i don't know about you but sometimes i think what i need is a pound of flesh not to forgive them i need paybacks I need vengeance to be exercised upon them. I don't necessarily have to do it. In fact, all the better. God, if you'd do my handiwork over there and take care of them. And he says, well, why don't you pray this? Forgive me my sins even as I forgive them their sins against me. Forgiveness of our own sins is like a pipe. You can pour all the forgiveness you want into one end of the pipe, but if nothing is coming out the other end after a short moment... There's nothing going in. And we might think we've got all of God's grace, but if we're not extending that grace to forgive others, there's no grace coming in to our life. Living with unforgiveness is it's like trying to hold a beach ball underwater. I, mean, I think we've all tried it, a, a volleyball, a beach ball, any kind of ball, right? You try to hold it underwater. I mean, it's, you might think for just a moment that you've succeeded, and the next thing you know, boom, it pops flying out of the water. It's just going to keep doing that. And you try to hold on to unforgiveness, and you think you've got it dealt with, it will come popping out at the worst possible moments. Continue to come up in your life. It's as inconvenient as you can imagine. It's necessary to forgive. It is not easy to forgive. It's not easy for the obvious reason that I don't want to. (laughs) I'd rather hold a grudge in my flesh. I don't recognize my need to forgive. And it's not easy because it means I must pursue reconciliation, peace with that brother or sister, far beyond what one would think is required. I mean, in my case, what if I have a conflict with another pastor that I'm unable to resolve? Well, I've had to ask another pastor to come into my life and help me resolve that conflict with this other. So you get a third party involved. Why? Because I need to forgive every bit as much as I need to be forgiven. In fact, the two are connected. Now, reconciliation is not always possible, but it must almost always be pursued with Exceptions in certain cases of abuse and the like. 
We must see forgiving others as something we need as every bit as much as our own forgiveness. Why? Because Christ is being formed in us, and I need to be forgiving in order to be made like Christ. And thirdly, we need deliverance from evil. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil, or from evil, or uh, I think it's the ESV says the evil one. Um, this line often raises questions about why God would lead anyone into temptation. Why would God, quote, tempt, or even, as the word also means, test me, one might wonder. Why would he do that? Well, we don't have to travel very far from our text uh, from, in this prayer to find help. In Matthew 4, verse 1, right after Jesus had been baptized and anointed by the Holy Spirit for his ministry to Israel, he, we read this, quote, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So note, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. For what purpose? To be tempted by the devil. The Holy Spirit didn't tempt him. But he was led to a place where he faced a test. He was tempted by the devil, and that was a test, which he passed with flying colors, to be sure. And likewise, God directs our steps. And while he will never tempt us to do evil, he may well lead us into places where our faith will be tested and will be tempted to do evil in that moment. Jesus himself had this experience not only in the wilderness, but also on the journey to the cross. He told the disciples to watch and pray lest they fall in temptation. And though they slept, instead Jesus himself took his own advice and he prayed. Sweating great drops of blood as he faced temptation to call angels to his rescue to get out of there, which he could have done. But he did not. We would prefer experiencing life without our faith ever being tested because it makes us uncomfortable. We like comfort. I do anyway. But God wants to strengthen us. He wants to grow us. Abraham didn't arrive at Genesis 22 with that God saying, take your son, your only son, and offer him to me. Oh, sure, gladly. He didn't arrive at that place of faith without being tested. This was his tenth test. And some of the other tests he did well at, and some he kind of did miserable at. Okay? But he grew through all of them, and his faith grew. The two previous requests provide relevant examples of ways that we might be tempted into evil. In the context of give us today our daily bread, lead us not into temptation is like the proverb which says, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Proverbs 30. In other words, praying these two requests together is another way of praying, Lord, don't give, me, give us more than we need lest we be tempted to use it wrongly. To refuse to give it to our brother or sister in need. Deliver me from such evil. Likewise, praying, Lord, forgive me even as I forgive others and lead us not into temptation. We are asking, Lord, please don't put me in a place where it is hard to forgive others 
for what they have done, for I am weak and do not know that I can forgive them, yet I must. Too often we see our unforgiveness as the fault of the person who wronged us. You know, well, if they hadn't harmed me so much, if they hadn't have done it so maliciously or whatever we use, I get it. It's hard. But the text won't allow us to go there. But deliver us from evil. Again, some translations say from the evil one. The Greek makes both possible. And while it makes little difference, I think the context leans towards simply deliver us from evil, not the evil one. Um, Evil is used elsewhere to describe the time and system in which we live. In Galatians 1, we read, Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. The present evil age. You see, we live, because of Christ's coming, in what we often refer to in theological circles as the already, not yet. And the already, you see, the, the world is passing away. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, death is come upon humanity. And so everything in the created world as we see it and feel it and touch it is passing away. And yet Christ has come, so His kingdom has already begun. The new creation, we talked about this last week, has begun in the resurrection of Jesus. So already the kingdom of God has come, and yet not yet because the passing away world still exists. So we're, we're in the overlap of the ages, if you will. Evil marks the age that is passing away, but it is very much still here. Deliver us from the, from the evil, we might say, which would tempt us to partake in this passing world and its ways. In context, the evil of greed and lust, of unforgiveness and hatred, but more than that, to be sure, all evil. We need to be delivered, rescued from evil. And this age is filled with it. We're often like the proverbial frog that's being boiled in water. You know, you start him in cold water, doesn't seem to mind, and you gradually warm it. And he's not jumping out, he's not worried about it until he's boiled to dinner. We live in a day when people call evil good and good evil. And while we may recognize the obvious ways that others do that, at the same time we could be swallowing the more subtle ways in which we do that. Those are the ones we should be most concerned about. Not what others are doing, but what we are doing. Putting it in context, we are prone to disguising our lack of concern for the poor, or our hoarding beyond our daily provision as being wise about the future, or being realistic. Or, and we are good at this, we are prone to disguising our unforgiveness of a brother or sister as setting up boundaries. I only know these things because I've tried them myself. Sometimes our attitude toward evil is not that we need rescued from its enslaving grip, but that we just need to keep it at arm's length so that we can dabble in it a little here and there as we desire, deceiving ourselves into thinking we are safe. We need deliverance from the very evil from which we are unable to rescue ourselves the evil we far too often do not recognize. Now, in closing, 
just want to go back to an illustration I used a few weeks back, right after the baseball, youth baseball uh, clinic that we did as an outreach. And at the beginning of that clinic, and I shared this, John sat all the kids down that were there for the kids and explained to them that, that they may think that they've outgrown a tee when they left T-ball. But they're going to be using a tee today because every good batter uses a tee. In the college ranks, they all hit off of a tee. In the majors, they spend about an hour a day hitting off of a tee. So, kids, you might think that you've outgrown the need for a tee, but that's the only way to train yourself. If a ball's here, you can move that tee around. You can raise it, lower it. Here's how I hit an inside pitch. And then you train yourself. You, you develop muscle memory. And if you've got an up and away, you train yourself with that muscle memory. Well, the Lord's Prayer is like a tee in baseball. And we need it every day to train ourselves what we are to desire in prayer and what we, are, what we need to request in prayer, what our needs are. It teaches us things that would otherwise be unnatural for us to request. When the disciples asked Jesus how to pray, he didn't say, oh, you know, whatever comes to mind, that'd be great. He said, pray this way. And he gave us a batting tee, if you will, to train us in what we should be praying for, to train us in what we should be yearning for, to train us in what we really, really and truly need. Don't ever think you've outgrown the Lord's Prayer. Rather, grow into it. As we pray this prayer, meaning it, we will over time discover a need we did not know we had. Like when a new person comes into your life, whether a child or the person you will love deeply but just met, you find a need for that person you didn't even know you had, and along with it, a capacity for loving that person which you didn't have but now do. As we pray this prayer, we'll not only discover needs we didn't know we had, we'll find a capacity for living in those needs we didn't have before. So for our gospel formation, let's all set up our T's and practice daily, regularly, weekly in the Lord's Prayer. Amen? Let's pray. Father, teach us to pray. Lord Jesus, teach us to pray. Holy Spirit, you who groan within us, give words to our prayers that we might be yearning for the very things that you yearn for. In Jesus' name, amen.